when I uh, first left university, I started to work for a company in Cambridge. And because I lived on the other side of the city, and because Cambridge is considerably flatter than Sheffield, I cycled to work every day. If you cycle to work here, then I take my hat off to you. I don't think I could manage it at all. Actually, I think I could probably manage to cycle to church. That would take me about two minutes. It's getting home that would take me till next Wednesday. Um, Anyway, cycling to work in Cambridge, uh, you soon get to know the other people who are on your route. And there was one guy in particular, I I don't know his name, uh, but he must have lived near my work and he must have worked near my home because I always used to pass him on my way in. And he obviously had a very disciplined morning routine and a very steady cycling pace because from where I passed him on the route I could always tell how early I was or how fine I was cutting it to get to work on time. You see his dependability highlighted my inconsistency and I think we get the same sort of thing in 1 Samuel 12. You see in this chapter we get a great picture of the dependability of God his dependability in his character and in his action. And yet it is as we see that, that we see also the inconsistency of his people and the inconsistency of our hearts. See, the more we understand God's dependability, his goodness and greatness, the more we see the stupidity of sin, that it is such a great God that we turn from. And the more we understand God's dependability, his honour and holiness, or the more we see the foundations for fear, that it is such an awesome God that we have turned from. And yet the more we understand God's dependability, his faithfulness and forgiveness, well, the more we see the grounds for grace, that this great and awesome God turns our hearts back to him. The stupidity of sin, the foundations of fear and the grounds of grace all rooted in the dependability of our God. So let's consider those in turn. First we see that the dependability of God highlights the stupidity of sin. Uh, Really this is the, the whole of the first verse 13 verses in our chapter. Do turn to it with me. And notice first the definition of sin that we get in these chapters. It's a word that... Uh, isn't often used outside of a church. But in verse 10 we read that throughout their history, Israel came to a stage of saying, we have sinned. And what did that look like? Well, we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. So you see, it really isn't things that we do. No, it is about our attitude to the Lord God. And they had turned from him, they turned from loving the true God instead following after idols, made-up gods of their own choosing. And sin just isn't in the religious sphere of things that we believe. No, in verse 12 we see that the sin of the people is that they've said to Samuel, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. So sin is going away from God's rule for the whole of our lives, instead substituting in our own authority, deciding what we'll do. See, understood in that way, sin it might make us 
disreputable, but it must also be very respectable. As we swap the Lord for idols, as we swap his rule for our own. But either way, the point here is that sin is stupid. Because sin is rejecting God our King when all along he is the perfect and the best king that we could possibly imagine. And so in these verses, Samuel builds up the picture of the Lord's great kingship. Firstly, it's seen in Samuel himself, God's appointed man who is blameless. Look at verse 3. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel turns uh, this meeting of the community into a sort of courtroom where he puts himself in the dock and challenges anyone to come and accuse him of wrongdoing. Uh, But they can't. He hasn't stolen from anyone. He hasn't oppressed anyone. He hasn't favoured anyone, turning a blind eye to what they did. No, as God's appointed leader, Samuel has been blameless. And it's not just Samuel, but the Lord himself has been the perfect helper to his people. So we read on from verse 7. Now then, stand here, because I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your fathers. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord, and said, We have sinned. We have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel. And he delivered you from the hands of your enemies on every side, so that you lived securely. These are the Lord's righteous acts for his people for generations that he provided for their needs, giving them a place to live and giving them safety. That whenever the need arose, he appointed leaders to deliver his people. First Moses and Aaron, but then all of the judges ending in Samuel himself. With the Lord on their side, things had gone well for Israel. And when had things not gone well? Well, verse 9, it was when they had forgotten the Lord. And so the Lord had allowed them to face temporary crisis so that they would turn back to him and cry out. And each cry through their history was met with the swift action of the God of history. It is dependability that we see here. Though, though their attitude to God had ebbed and flowed, he had steadily kept them close to him and repeatedly delivered his people whenever difficulties faced them. And yet it's in that context that they say they want a human king like the other nations. That that request that we looked at in chapter 8 last week. Even though it's like they're trading in a Rolls Royce to get a metro. Sorry if you drive a metro, but I had to insult someone. 
it's like they're turning down a world-famous consultant and asking to go to the back of the NHS waiting list. It was wrong, yes. It was evil, yes, we'll see that later. But it was also foolish. It didn't make sense. It was stupid. And yet we do the same thing daily. Because despite what we know God is like, despite all that we know God has done for us, despite his repeated willingness to hear us and to help us, to care for us and to keep us, we forget him and look to other things whenever the latest difficulty arises. Oh, we don't mind depending on God when things are going well, or at least saying that we do, but when things go wrong, it's a different matter. See, for Israel, the big issue was Nahash, there in verse 12. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. It was Nahash that caused them to abandon the Lord and look to other things. It seems that Nahash had been around for a while, causing a few problems in the border areas, but it all came to a head back in chapter 11 and verse 1 when he lays a siege. Have a look there, page 280, 11 verse 1. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you, only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you, and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so that we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. Now, my guess is that we would sympathise with them, that the prospect of having your eye gouged out would not be attractive. But where do they turn? Not to the Lord. No, not to the Lord who back in chapter 7 thundered against the Philistines so that they were thrown into such a panic that they were routed, routed before the Israelites even had to draw a sword. No, not to him. No, they'll turn anywhere but him, sending messengers throughout the land, messengers who don't even know where they're really going, but who eventually stumble upon Saul, the man who, unknown to the people, God has already anointed as their future king, already enabled to lead them to victory over Nahash so that even in their sinful neglect of God and seeking after alternative solutions, he is still working behind the scenes for their good. We'll see more of that later. But They abandon the Lord when difficulty comes. Just when they need him the most, they forget him. Just when only he can rescue them, they turn their hearts to useless idols and a weak king. Where verse 21 tells us that those things can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they're useless. Now Nahash is dead, long dead, but he has his successors. And sadly, you and I are willing to abandon the Lord when much less than our right eye is threatened. So it is when we are at our busiest, isn't it? When we need God's help the most that we stop praying to him and start relying on ourselves. 
It's when layoffs are threatened or promotions hinted at at work that we stoop to office politics to get ahead. Oh, we'll get back to serving the Lord when things have stabilised. It's when loneliness hits that we will turn to anyone for relationship and companionship, however unsuitable, never mind whether they will draw us toward or away from the Lord. It's when Christian liberties are threatened that we trust not in the Lord but in human rights treaties and high court judges. I don't know what Nahash looks like in your life today but I know there will be something and the stupidity of sin would have us turn away from our dependable God turn away from him when we need him the most and turn instead to things that are useless idols things that when we try to grasp them for support run through our fingers like sand it is stupid but it is also serious Because as we move on, in verses 14 to 19, the the dependability of God shows us the foundation of fear. Uh, Have a look at verse 15 there. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you, as it was against your fathers. Now then, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain and you will realise what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called upon the Lord and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Now the Lord's dependability should lead us to fear him when we consider our sin. Partly it's the dependability of his position, that he was the ruling king over his people and would remain so, however much they wanted to have a human king as well. So that even in verse 14 here, the newly appointed king Saul still has to serve and obey and follow the true king. But also there's the Lord's response to sin, which has always been the same. If people broke the covenant, then they faced the consequences. The Lord's hand was against them. As throughout the period of the judges, the Israelites were again and again handed over to enemy powers until they turned back to the Lord. That was his action in the past, but then there's his power in the present. As Samuel announces that this a miracle thunderstorm will occur in, during the wheat harvest. It's the height of the dry season. This thunderstorm that's predicted and then happens and which points to God's power. It points to their total reliance on him living in an agrarian society. And in part it was a reminder of that thundering victory that the Lord had won for them back in chapter 7 and yet which they have so quickly forgotten. Certainly the Israelites get the message, don't they? They are in shocked awe at both the Lord and Samuel. And they realise the extent of their sin, verse 19. They know they deserve to die. They fear God. They fear him because of his unchanging position as their Lord, because of his consistent hatred of and judgement on sin in the past, and because of his certain power 
which they now face. Those are things that they could depend on and they are things from which we cannot hide. But do we tolerate what the Lord despises? Do we reduce uh, the Lord in our thinking to someone who is insipid and benign? Do you think perhaps that fear of God's judgment was okay for Old Testament believers, but that it is inappropriate today? Well, not so. For Jesus himself says, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Or do you? Friends, we should fear the Lord. And we should fear him the more, the better we know him. The better we know his dependable hatred of sin. And yet, at the same time as calling on the Israelites to fear the Lord, Samuel can also say in verse 20, do not be afraid. Fear the Lord, do not be afraid. Though they have done this evil, though they deserve death, do not be afraid. And that is because the dependability of God shows us not only the stupidity of our sin, not only its seriousness and the foundations of fear, but it also shows us the grounds of grace. Grace which leads us to Jesus, grace in which lies our hope. And I think the key verse here is verse 22. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. We see there the Lord's purpose and his pleasure. A purpose and pleasure which do not change and which cannot be destroyed even by the sin of his people. They are dependable. His purpose is to bring glory to his name. He will not reject them for the sake of his great name. To to speak of the Lord's name here is to speak of his reputation the way that he is seen in the world. And his purpose is that his name will be honoured, honoured as the one who rescues and loves a people. And so rescue and love them he will. It is his purpose, but more than that, it is also his great pleasure. The Lord was pleased to make us his own. It is the delight of our God that he brings people like us into relationship with him and keeps that relationship going. And so in spite of our sin, this dependable purpose and pleasure of God are the grounds for grace. Grounds that mean that the Lord will not treat us as we deserve, but instead will rescue and restore. That though we deserve to die, we can have life with him. And how is it possible How is that rescue to be achieved? Well, for the Israelites on this day, it was Samuel who was the key, wasn't it? See verse 19 there again? The people all said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God. It's a striking way to describe God there, isn't it? The Lord your God. For your servants 
so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. They looked to Samuel to intercede for them, to pray. And Samuel tells them not to be afraid. And says, verse 23, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. And so Samuel prays and the people are restored. At least for a while. See, verse 25 hints at the continued sin that the rest of 1 Samuel and indeed the Old Testament will unfold for us. It it hints at the sin of the people and their king that will lead to exile. And so for us, you see, we look not to Samuel, but to one greater. We look to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, who like Samuel, is a blameless leader of his people, not extorting, not oppressing, not favouring, but instead coming not to be served, but to serve. The Lord Jesus, who like Samuel, is used by God to deliver us from our enemies. Not foreign armies, but the enemies of sin and death. Or sin, the world and the devil, in the words of Benjamin and Max's baptism. The Lord Jesus, who like Samuel, teaches us the right way, the way that is good and right. The Lord Jesus, who like Samuel, declares God's judgment on sin and intercedes on our behalf. And the Lord Jesus, who unlike Samuel, can not only pray for God's grace, but provides it as he takes our sin onto himself on the cross. The Lord is dependable. And his dependability highlights the stupidity of our sin. It gives us the foundation of our fear. And it is the grounds of grace for his people. And so as I finish and as we finish our series through these chapters, we're all left with a question. Are we part of it? Are we part of God's people? Are we in this kingdom that we see being established? You see, if we are, then we will be those who depend on our dependable God, who do not turn away from him to chase after useless idols, who even when we have sinned, do not continue to turn from him, but instead turn back to him to serve him. We will be people who make sure that we fear the Lord, recognising his awesome power. And we will be people who look to the rescue that he provides in his own Son, our Saviour and King. So let's pray together.